This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today, wherever you listen to podcasts. Blue Wire. With the first pick in the 2009 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions select Matthew Stafford. Another episode of the Michael Rothstein Show. I am your host, as always, Michael Rothstein. This episode brought to you by Pepsi, DoorDash, Regents Field, and Bet Online. Thanks, as always, to all of my sponsors for helping get this podcast off of the ground every day and every week. So, hope you enjoyed yesterday's interview with Jeff Passan as the Major League Baseball playoffs kicked off. We did talk a little bit of NFL in there as well. I know it's a departure from our normal Lions talk, and I'm just trying to mix some different things in there for you, try to broaden horizons a little bit, maybe give you a little bit of different type of talk now and then as we go. Most of those will be on Tuesdays, as everything else seems to be pretty regimented from what we do. But occasionally we might move them around or maybe some weeks we won't have anything at all and it'll be all Lions all the time. Still figuring out what next week is going to look like with the bye. But before we get into today's mailbag and there are a bunch of great questions, so we're mostly going to hit mailbag stuff after the break. did want to just address my story that ran today uh, on Wednesday at least, or Tuesday. Today is Wednesday. So Tuesday on ESPN.com about... The 20th anniversary of Remember the Titans. I have hinted on this podcast that I've been working on a couple of big stories throughout the summer and even back as early as the spring. And the Sheila Fordham story that ran last week was one of them. And the Remember the Titans story that ran on Tuesday was another one of them. And it's a story that, frankly, the genesis of it came about Probably in January or early February, I was talking with an editor. I had seen a, another oral history that we had done at ESPN that my friend Tom Van Heron had done on Little Giants. And I was just kind of poking around wondering, hey, what movies, maybe of 20th anniversaries, 25th anniversaries, always looking for different story ideas wherever I can. And I saw that Remember, the Titans was going to be 20 years old this year. First, I couldn't really believe that. Second, I felt incredibly old. And third, I thought, well, that movie is really good. And it's really popular. And you look at that cast, and really from the top down, it was an amazing cast. Ryan Gosling had a bit part in that movie, and he's freaking Ryan Gosling now. Kate Bosworth had a small part in that movie, and she's Kate freaking Bosworth. So I was like, you know what, this this is interesting. You, you obviously Jerry Bruckheimer 
produced it, Boaz Yakin directed it. There's so many different pieces to it and, and so many incredible people involved with it. Trevor Robin, who wrote the score and composed the score, is it was in the band Yes. Like just a whole bunch of stuff that I just really intrigued me. So I'm like, you know what? Let me ask and, and see if we want to do this. So I pitched it to my boss and he said yes. So as it is with a lot of times bigger stories, kind of more ambitious stories, you start poking around, you start trying to reach out to people. And I wasn't getting anywhere in February and I kind of walked away from the project because it wasn't something that was an absolute, we have to have this. It was, hey, let's see where you get. Things got busy, combine was coming up, football stuff, some UFC stuff, and I walked away. And then COVID happened and like everybody else, everybody was inside for a while and everybody was kind of stuck and had a bunch of time on their hands. So I kind of decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to maybe make another run at this, start reaching out to people. And Ethan Supley, about probably 25 minutes after I emailed him through his podcast, got back to me and said, yeah, sure, whatever you want, let's talk. And so we did. And it was a great conversation. And that led to a couple of other people being willing to talk with me. Boaz was incredibly gracious with his time very early on. And as you start talking to people, more people are then willing to talk. And Ronna Kress, who's the casting director, she was incredibly helpful with so much. And she gave me some leads on some people. And then Donald Faison and I talked for about an hour, hour and a half on a Zoom call. And Craig Kirkwood, who's now an attorney in Los Angeles, he and I talked for about an hour and he was amazing. Uh, Hayden Panettiere and I emailed a bit and you just started get rolling a little bit. And then I talked to Jerry Bruckheimer and then I talked to Chad Ullman and I talked with some other people throughout the last really six months. And it slowly started to come together. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, I've got something here. I really have something I think I can tell. And I ended up having, and this is very inside journalism dorkiness, I guess, 112 pages of notes, which for a story of really anything that's beyond like a really short like novella almost is it's a lot of notes and I have had a lot of notes for a lot of stories for instance the Sheila Ford Hamp story I think I had about 60 65 pages of notes for that piece and this was almost double that and I kind of it took hours upon hours to transcribe and then there was just piecing together the interview I had the interviews and trying to figure out a coherent way to tell the story and there was so much that I wasn't able to get in there because I just had that much like there was this whole thing about how every night they would play poker and how Ethan and Donald were pretty darn good at poker and actually Donald Faison ended up buying poker chips when he got back from shooting the film and when he would see the World Series of Poker on TV later on he'd be like I know how to play that game I learned it I'll remember the Titans it's like things like that kind of didn't make the final cut of the story, but just were such little interesting nuggets of what it was like behind the scenes of making the movie. And there was a whole bunch of stuff in the editing room and, and how the movie was initially too long and they felt boring and dry. And then they ended up cutting about a half hour out of it. And the first test screening, Michael Eisner showed up, which is really rare and how it scored better than 
any movie that Jerry Bruckheimer had done to that point in a test screening and there was only one scene this was actually in the story that they that didn't score well and that was the hospital scene which is one of the most pivotal scenes in the entire film and Chad Oman then figured out why as he explained in the story so hopefully you read the story I know it's not Lions based but it was something that ended up being a real big labor of love for me I, I really enjoyed doing it because rare is the story that you do where you don't have a single bad interview and this was a story where I didn't have a single interview that I didn't get something from, that I didn't get something fantastic from, that every person I could have quoted probably five or six or seven times in the piece without question and just had to kind of pick and choose a little bit. But everybody was, was fantastic that I spoke with and everybody was incredibly gracious with their time. And it was just a really fun story to tell. And it's a movie that I think holds up. I ended up watching the movie probably three or four times over the past six months just to refresh, to kind of maybe catch a few things here and there, to make sure that I was seeing what I was seeing and and that I could ask proper questions and the right questions and the right order of questioning that I wanted to. And I took a whole bunch of notes about the movie, probably more so than I've ever taken about any movie in my entire life. It was it was a really fun story to tell, and, and hopefully you've seen the movie. If you haven't, I highly recommend it, and it's on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I know that's a, that's a shill, but, uh, you know, it, it's a really good film. If you can find it, watch it. Uh, I think it's something, as Donald Faison said, and it's my lead quote, you know, something still that resonates today, and I'm paraphrasing it, it's something that still holds up today because of everything that's going on in the country and, and how much of the movie was based off of fear. And, and overcoming fear and overcoming all of that. And yeah, like I said, it was just a really fun story to tell. It's one that I'm, I'm very grateful I got to, got to complete and got to share with all of you because hopefully you enjoyed it and you took something from it. Uh, and yeah, there was, like I said, no bad interviews throughout the entire thing. And there should be a hopefully I think maybe another piece coming out here in the next few days. I'm not exactly sure what's going on with that. That uh, is a companion kind of to it, and yeah, we're really I'm really excited about it. And hopefully, like I said, it's something that you enjoyed. And we'll be back right after this with a whole bunch of Lions stuff as it's Lions Mailbag Day here on the Michael Rothstein Show. You've counted on restaurants, now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. Choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery, too. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local spot, and your food is on its way. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code BLUEWIRE. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code Blue Wire, don't forget, code is Blue Wire, $5 off your first order with DoorDash. And thanks to a lack of natural athleticism or commitment or overbearing sports parents, fewer than 1% of 1% of 1% of people will ever play professional football. 
But instead of entering the NFL, they've joined another league, the League of Football Watchers. This season will be different, and Pepsi is here to get you ready for game day no matter how much you watch. And if you watch the Detroit Lions on Sunday, you saw their first win in 11 months. Pepsi is the refreshment you need to power through any game day, and if you've watched the Lions over the last year, you've probably needed a lot of it, because Pepsi isn't made for those who play the game, it's made for those who watch it. Pepsi, made for football watching. And the wait is finally over, football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season, from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Now, back to our show. We are back, and hopefully, you indulged my little bit of talking about Remember the Titans at 20. And now we are back with today's mailbag. And we're going to just jump right into it here as there's a bunch of great questions, a bunch of good topics. And as always, I appreciate you asking these questions. And if you ever have a question, you can either tweet at me, use the hashtag Roth Show, hit me up on Instagram, hit me up on Facebook, really, whatever you'd like to do. Um, whatever is easiest for you, I will try and find your question. And if I don't answer your question for a week, ping me, bug me, and I'll get to your question hopefully the next week, or I'll get to another one of your questions. So we'll start with Antonio Mansour, who's at Antonio Mansu 17 He asked, did the Lions play more zone than usual this week? It seemed like it, but I don't know for sure. You're spot on, Antonio. They really did. Shockingly so. So as I think we all know at this point, the Lions were the most man-defense-heavy team in the NFL during the first two weeks of the season. And that's been Matt Patricia's MO throughout his tenure with the Lions, whether he had the staff and the personnel to play man or not. At the time, he played a lot of man. Then they played the Cardinals, and they did not play nearly as much man as they had done in the prior two weeks. They basically still played more man than they played zone. I don't think Matt Patricia is ever going to go away from that. But they played much closer to a 50-50 split. It was kind of more like 56-44 split man versus zone. But it was a much more diverse mix-up. And I think it's part of why you saw maybe a lot of short receptions from DeAndre Hopkins, from some of their other receivers, because... They were basically, it looked like even playing kind of a soft zone, saying, okay, we'll give you those five, six yards so that way you don't give up the 20, 25, in DeAndre Hawkins' case, you know, 50, 55 yard play by getting crossed up or getting lost or just getting flat beat because DeAndre Hawkins is that good. And what I think it also did was really confuse Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray threw three interceptions. Sure, one of them was a tip ball, but the other two were really well read, well designed defensive plays with good instincts from Jamie Collins and from Jeff Okuda. One was in man, I believe, and one was in zone. 
Two of Murray's picks came against man defense. So did two of his touchdown passes. And then one pick came while he was facing zone. And that's kind of that mix-up, that shifting, I think really helped him and helped the Lions' defense and really flustered Kyler Murray a little bit to where he had one of his worst days as a quarterback in his time in the NFL. He completed a higher percentage of his passes against zone than against man, which you would expect. The Lions, when they did play zone, played more cover three than anything else. So the bigger question, I think, is whether or not the Lions will continue to do this and mix it up going forward, or this was just a Kyler Murray based defensive scheme and I don't know what you do against Drew Brees I think it could in some ways depend whether or not the Saints have Michael Thomas or not but I think the one thing it did show is that a diversified game plan works and that to me is something that is super important for the Lions because for so long they have been going with just so much man over and over and over again and if you're curious what they did last year Last year against the Cardinals in the season opener, they played about 70% man and 30% zone. And that was kind of where they were the first three weeks of the year. Then against the Chiefs, they went almost 90% man. And then they went back to kind of that 60 to 65% range for a good portion of their games. Uh, And that frankly, I think is something that maybe you see more of going forward from the Lions. Because here's the thing when you look at man, and this is all from ESPN stats and information, two of their, or two of their three highest man percentage games were weeks one and two over the last season plus under Matt Patricia. And usually they've been in that 60-ish range man, you know, somewhere 30 to 40-ish zone. So it wouldn't shock me if you see more of that going forward, which can make that defense a little bit more unpredictable. But it was definitely jarring here against the Cardinals in week three. By the way, Matt Patricia has not won a game in 2019 or 2020 when he has gone with over 69% man defense. And that was in week three against the Eagles. They played 69% man that week. And they beat the Eagles. But anytime he's gone over 69% man, the Lions have lost the game. Now, granted, they lost a lot of games over the last season plus. So that is a long answer, maybe a little bit more than you were hoping for when it comes to the zone versus man situation. Daniel, who's at Daniel Swag BD, asks, is Fox the greatest free agent signing in the Lions history? Well, Daniel, I'm sure you're being a little bit facetious because I can't imagine calling a punter ever the greatest free agent signing in anyone's history unless you really haven't signed any free agents and that's not to say anything about Fox because he's been fantastic he's been one of the Lions best players and he's been one of the best punters in the NFL and he's been a weapon for Detroit and that was a position that was frankly a big question mark after Sam Martin left in free agency for Denver and Fox has filled in very very well But I would say he wasn't even the best free agent signing among specialists in Lions history because if you remember, Don Bielbach was a free agent signing and Matt Prater 
was a free agent signing as well. So he might even be the third best free agent signing in the Lions special teams unit right now. And that's a pretty good thing if your guy is one of the better punters in the league at the moment and he's your third best free agent signing throughout the course of his career because Prater's become one of the best kickers in Lions history, probably just behind Jason Hansen. And Don Muehlbach is Don Muehlbach as far as long snappers go. But yeah, I mean, it's not even close. If you think about even the last few years, some of the free agent signings that Detroit has made, Glover Quinn was a free agent signing, Reggie Bush was a free agent signing. Golden Tate and Marvin Jones were free agent signings. They've actually done pretty decent in grabbing some pretty big name and high impact free agents. Machine Mathis was a free agent signing for the Lions that have helped along the way over and over and over again. So even though they've had some misses, for sure, Nate Burleson was a free agent signing. I can go on and on. They've had a lot of hits and Fox, I think, will end up being potentially a good one, but I think there's a long way to go beyond the three-game sample size. Caps Michael, who's at Caps Slick, asks, Thoughts on Adrian Peterson taking over as the feature back in this game with the hot hand? How do you expect the running back carries between the trio to be split up in the future? So I asked Daryl Bevel about this today because it's been beyond just the third game against Arizona. I mean, it was much more marked, a much more marked discrepancy between the carries that Peterson got and the carries that Carrion Johnson and DeAndre Swift got because Peterson dwarfed Johnson and Swift together in terms of usage, carries, and yards. I don't expect it to be that every week, but I do expect Adrian Peterson at this point to be their lead back, at least for the immediate future. I asked how they would maybe manage his carries because he's still 35 years old. He's closer to my age at 39 than he is to carry on Johnson or DeAndre Swift and probably more than half of his teammates. So it is a question because at some point your body is going to break down, even if you are in as good a shape as Adrian Peterson. And for running backs, the end comes super, super fast before maybe even see it coming. So they said that, and I asked Kyle Kasky this, their running backs coach, and he said that most of the managing of his work is going to be during the week. And then game days are going to be game days and they're going to use them how they're going to use them. And that Adrian Peterson feels comfortable enough with Kasky and probably with Daryl Bevel, who he's known for over a decade now to say, Hey, this is too much or Hey, I can take more. And you kind of go from there. But the way Daryl Bevel talked made it seem to me that Adrian Peterson will be their lead back going forward. Do I expect him to get, that high volume of carries compared to Swift and to carry on every week? No, I don't. I think they'll work carry on in a bit more. I think they'll work DeAndre Swift in a bit more. I think you can see both of those guys in on third downs and in obvious passing situations a lot more than Adrian Peterson going forward. But I think in games where you want to keep the opposing offense off the field like they did against the Cardinals, I think you can see a lot of Adrian Peterson. And then it's going to be week by week, but Peterson's going to be a guy who's going to get his work every week, going to get his carries. And from a fantasy perspective, Peterson to me is the back to own at least over the next few weeks. And you kind of see how it goes. But long term, I mean, I still think DeAndre Swift is probably the guy, but it might not be until next year, depending on how Adrian Peterson holds up. Because if he keeps playing as he is, he's averaging, I think it was 4.9 
uh, yards a carry. How can you go away from that? It's rare to find a Lions running back that's done that over the course of a full season. on Johnson did it as a rookie in 118 carries, which was essentially half a season for him. He played in 10 games and started seven. He averaged 5.4 yards a carry. But before that, you're going back to guys like Kevin Smith. Zach Zenner averaged 4.8 in the year that in 2018 as well, but that was only on 55 carries. So the question will be whether or not it all holds up for Adrian Peterson, and that's going to be a tough ask. But you look at the backfield right now, and it's not like anybody's averaging great numbers to really even challenge him. DeAndre Swift, again, small sample size, 2.5 yards per carry on eight carries. on Johnson, 18 carries, 3.4 yards per carry. Adrian Peterson on 43 carries is getting 4.9. So even though it sometimes looks like he's getting some one-yard gains, two-yard games, they get balanced out by 15, 16, 27-yard gains. And that's not abnormal from running backs. It's just not, especially some of the more gifted ones. I mean, even Barry Sanders, as great as Barry Sanders was and Barry Sanders was phenomenal. I don't think anyone questions that. I mean, Barry Sanders, you just he he gained, you know, chunks of yards on so many plays, but he also had his fair share of zero yards, one yards, two yards, two yards, fifteen. And that would be sometimes how Barry would run. And you remember the flashy runs and the amazing runs, but there were plenty of one and two yard runs in there as well. So I understand the frustration. The Lions used two second round picks in recent years on running backs, and both of them are behind a 35-year-old running back. But Adrian Peterson is a special back, always has been. And if he's giving you something and giving you what the Lions need to win games, and that's all you can ask for. And I think that you can see DeAndre Swift eventually get worked in a bit more. Could even see it this week. I think you'll see a similar thing for on Johnson. I don't expect the workload to be quite as high as it was against the Cardinals for Adrian Peterson going forward just because I don't know if he can sustain that. I don't know if any running back in the NFL could sustain that except for maybe Ezekiel Elliott at this point. So I think they need to be somewhat smart with his carries, again, in part because of his age and the amount of wear that's just on his body, even though it's that he's in tremendous shape and you want to get carry on and DeAndre Swift some work. So I expect that it'll be a little bit more balanced than last week going forward. But if Adrian Peterson keeps running as he is, I don't see any reason why you would go away from him at any point soon until he shows he can't do it. Ben, who's at BC underscore Lions fan asks, Mike, how many times will the Lions try to run Peterson on first down this year? And that's a fair question as well. I think that that was done specifically against the Cardinals because, frankly, the Lions wanted to ball control. They wanted to shorten the game. They wanted to give Kyler Murray fewer possessions. And especially once they started to confuse him, they really wanted to do that because that offense can be so explosive. And Matt Patricia knows that maybe better than anybody because of his friendship with Cliff Kingsbury. So you look at all those things and you say, well, it made a lot of sense for them to do that. And it ultimately ended up being successful for them. Do I think that they should continue to do that? No, I think they need to have a little bit more balance. Matthew Stafford's always been a good play action quarterback. And Adrian Peterson is a great guy to sell play action with. I would imagine you'll see some more play action against the Saints, for instance, this week. And maybe some just straight pass plays 
against the Saints. But remember, too, they were still working Kenny Galladay back in the offense. He's still a little beat up as he's coming back from a hamstring injury. And they were working with a new offensive line in some aspects because Vitae had only played limited amounts of right guard. He'd never played next to Tyrell Cross before. He never played next to Frank Ragnall before. He never played on a Lions team before. And then Jonah Jackson was working at left guard for the first time. So you had some changes on the offensive line that, frankly, you'd rather necessitate not having your quarterback in a situation early on, especially against a good pass rush that the Cardinals do have from putting himself in potentially bad situations on first down that would then maybe take you out of an entire game plan early on where you know you gave the ball to Adrian Peterson. He's probably at the very least going to get back to the line of scrimmage, if not eke out a couple of yards, even if it's not a big flashy run, that can keep you somewhat on schedule still for second and third down. So I think that's part of why we saw some of that this past week against Arizona and maybe even a little bit against Green Bay because you want to keep some of these offenses off the field. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle the Saints, and I think it could be very dependent on whether or not Michael Thomas plays on Sunday. And we'll get into that a little bit more later in the week when uh, my colleague Mike Triplett joins us for our Saints-Lions preview. Ashley David Soden, who's at Soden AD, asks, if you were GM, what would you do with the roster decisions the front office is facing with... J. Ron Curse, Mike Ford, and Bo Scarborough, among other people. Well, some of these guys, listen, when they're ready to come off injured reserve, um, you bring them back off injured reserve. Justin Coleman and Joe Dahl, to me, being the two obvious ones, if and when they are ready and available, which won't be until after the bye. Mike Ford and Bo Scarborough theoretically could come off injured reserve now, but if they're not ready... Why take them off? And frankly, as well, if you don't think you totally need them, why take them off at this point either? Because you have a bye next week. You can kind of sit back, reevaluate the first quarter of the season and say, okay, where can we go with some of these guys? Do you need Bo Scarborough? Do you need Mike Ford? And I think with those two guys specifically, you make a decision. I think you probably need Bo Scarborough at this point less than you need Mike Ford because of what you're getting out of Adrian Peterson and Kerryon Johnson and DeAndre Swift. And Ty Johnson doesn't even really play all that much, but we've seen what he can do. Obviously, Bo Scarborough is a little bit more of a different back, probably more in the mold of Adrian Peterson as far as what his role would be without... You know, you want to talk more committee backfield by committee. If Peterson were to go down at any point and they brought Bo Scarborough back up and put him in, I think you would see a lot more by committee and a lot more of Carryon Johnson. But I, that's the question: is I don't know if you necessarily need to rush Bo Scarborough back at this point and wait till he's fully healthy. And if he is fully healthy, then you have a decision to make whether you want to keep him, whether you want to put him on the practice squad, or you just say, you know what, you're on IR, and that's that's what it's going to be. Mike Ford, to me, is a guy that I think once he's ready, if I'm the Lions, I bring him back. You obviously have some questions and some issues at corner. You're still a little bit thin at corner until you see Desmond Trufant practice, and we don't know what his status is going to quite be yet. We'll see how much he does this week during practice. And Justin Coleman's obviously still out until after the bye. So if you can bring Mike Ford back and he's ready to come back, maybe you do it because I think maybe you trust Mike Ford a little bit more than, say, Chris Jones, who is one of the top backup corners now, and you just signed him a couple of weeks ago. So that's where I would go. I would 
bring Mike Ford back as soon as I possibly could if I felt that he was ready because he also gives you a little bit more on special teams. Jaron Curse is a, a really interesting question at this point because you have obviously Tracy Walker and Will Harris and Deron Harmon who have roles and pretty defined roles. And I don't know where Curse fits in on that. So then do you want to carry five safety or six safeties? Do you cut C.J. Moore, who's one of your better special teams players? Do you cut Miles Killebrew, who's one of your leaders and one of your better special teams players? I don't know if you do that at this point. And I think it's, it's an interesting question they're going to have to address at the end of the week. Now, C.J. Moore has been hurt a couple times, and we'll see whether maybe they put him on injured reserve or there's a couple of other guys that theoretically they could put, end up landing on IR. That if you go that route, then you have room for J. Ron Curse because another guy's going on IR, but that's going to be a tough decision, I think, for the Lions to make. Curse played a lot, and it looked like he was going to have a big role during training camp when he was working in a lot with the second team, and it it seemed like he might have a real place. And he's athletic-wise and build-wise, man, you, you want him on the field. But the question will be where do you think you can fit him on the field, and whether or not he's going to give you more than some of those other guys. And with Will Harris, you did invest a third-round pick in him last year. I don't know if you're going to go away from that at that point. Clearly, I don't think you can take Tracy Walker off the field. And they didn't take Tracy Walker off the field on Sunday. He played 100% of snaps, and Deron Harmon isn't going anywhere. So to me, the question is where you put J. Ron Curse. I think Bo Scarborough is kind of just sitting there until you need a running back maybe. Uh, and then maybe you make a decision on him because it's not like you have to pull him off injured reserve because injured reserve is just injured reserve this this year. And Mike Ford, to me, I think when he's ready, I think you bring him back up and just go from there. Now, the question would be if he's not ready yet and it ends up being, hey, we're going to do... Mike Ford or Justin Coleman or both of them coming back at once, I think you have a little bit more of a question there if you really want to be that heavy at corner. But corner's a position where I think you need a lot of guys. So, again, going to be something interesting to watch, but that would be my my thoughts on that. Jason M., who's at GQ Jason, asks, with the shaky Saints team and a favorable schedule after the bye, is this win the start of a turnaround or just a fluke, meaning the Cardinals win? I don't know. I mean, Matt Patricia, one of my favorite stats from Sunday was that Matt Patricia for his 10-24-1 record is somehow 3-0 in week three. Still don't understand exactly how that goes and and what it is about week three magic. And they've been against good teams too. The Patriots he beat and the Eagles he beat. And the Eagles obviously weren't a great shakes team, but they weren't bad last year. And then Obviously, they beat the Cardinals, and we'll see what happens with them. But I don't think that the Cardinals are a bad team. So he's had a lot of success in week three. Do I think it's just a fluke? No, and here's why. I don't necessarily think they beat the Saints on Sunday, even though I don't think the Saints are great. And I think Michael Thomas's status could be a big difference for the Lions between a win and a loss because I think Michael Thomas can just change the game that much, much like Calvin Johnson used to. But I look at their schedule after the bye. They go to Jacksonville, then they go to Atlanta, and then after that, the Lions host Indianapolis, they play Minnesota, they play Washington, they play Houston on Thanksgiving. None of those teams are world beaters. I still think the Texans have a chance to be pretty darn good, 
They also go to Carolina, and Carolina's a one-win team. So you look at it and you say, those are all games that I think they could be in. And I can make a case for them winning a lot of those games. Do I think they win all of those games? Absolutely not. Do I think they lose all of those games? Absolutely not. They probably end up somewhere in the middle, but we'll see how all of that goes. And I don't really know the answer to a lot of those questions. To me, the hardest games in that stretch are probably Houston. And we'll see if Minnesota can get it turned around at that point. And I still think the Falcons... from a talent perspective, have a lot. Just it's a mess right now with the collapses, much like it's been before this past week in Detroit. So that's a road game as well. Those are the ones that are tough. But yeah, I think it's a manageable schedule for them. So even if they lose against the Saints, uh, as long as they're competitive, I think that they have something to build on in, in what would be a manageable October and November before another really tough stretch to end the season. Gar, who's at Gar Johnson one asks, how much of the defense's poor play can be attributed to scheme play calling versus talent? For example, Jimmy Collins looked like a completely different player this week. I agree, and I think they found something by playing more of a combination between zone and man. I think they were more unpredictable than they've been in the past when they were playing only man. So that, I think, helps. I think there is a talent issue, particularly on the defensive line. I don't think they have enough depth there. I don't think they have a high-end pass rusher there to go along with Trey Flowers. Romeo Aquara, I think, is a very good kind of number three defensive end, but I don't know if he's going to give you a ton as a number two defensive end. Nick Williams just hasn't really given you a lot, uh, from a statistics standpoint at least, uh, up front as a pass rusher, and that to me has been a problem. And yeah, Jamie Collins has played particularly well, and I think we've seen them move away from Jared Davis. We'll see if that continues or if that was a one-game-only type of thing. But based off of the way that Tavai and Collins and Christian Jones played together, I think that you go with that going forward if you're the Lions. So I I think it was a lot of scheme and just putting their players in poor situations too often with man defense. And I think by mixing it up and understanding what they have in Awarie and what they have in Okuda and what they have in their safeties and allowing them to play a little bit more zone, which can maybe give them a little bit more freedom to saying, okay, we'll give up the short stuff instead of maybe getting beat deep or, or being gashed for big plays can, can help. And yeah, I think you've seen a really good Jamie Collins. And if they can get good Jamie Collins over and over again, I think that that's a big, big win for the defense, and it can really affect, I think, a lot of what they're going to maybe do going forward. And, you know, it's hard to know because we didn't see a play that in week one because he got ejected, and then, you know, everybody on that defense was bad in week two for the most part, even though I thought Collins was among the better players in week two, along with Tracy Walker for the Lions. But, you know, we'll see what happens going forward. Too much to make read out of one game, I think, but we'll see. Chuck Sutton, who's at DJCNS, asks, when do the Lions get a new coach? Um, I mean, we'll see what happens here in, on Sunday, but I would imagine the win against the Cardinals has definitely bought Matt Patricia some time and some capital, in part because of the early buy. And if they're competitive on Sunday, if they win on Sunday, I think that you're probably looking at he's going to get the rest of the season. And he may get the rest of the season anyway, or at least till Thanksgiving, and you see what happens and you let it play out because it's clear that the team hasn't 
quit on him at this point based off of the way that they played on Sunday against the Cardinals. And I think that you just see where it goes because they are one and two. And there are a lot of teams in the NFL right now that are 0-3. And I think you're working through a lot of September and a lot of teams are, and and you kind of see where it is after that. And the fact that you're not going to be 0-4 going into the bye, I think Matt Patricia probably gets the rest of the year at the very least, and we'll see. And I don't think Sheila Fordham's mandate has changed of there needs to be major improvement. They need to be playing meaningful football in December. And we're a long way from knowing whether or not they will end up doing that. But I think it remains to be seen. And obviously that's a lot different than what we were talking about last week. Uh, but it's going to be something to, to watch. Uh, one win does not a season make, and one win does not really saving a coaching tenure but one win can give a team life. And I think that that is what the win on Sunday, especially the way it unfolded, ended up maybe doing for the Lions. But we'll see if that ends up carrying over. At Jeremy Friedrichs, who's at Friedrichs JK, asks, what's your standpoint on Matt Patricia saying standpoint so much? Everybody has ticks in things that they say. We all know Matthew Stafford will say um a lot. Jim Caldwell used to like to say a whole bunch of things, including certainly and things of that nature. Uh, And obviously, most famously, check the report. Jim Schwartz had his tics and and some of the things that he said. I know I've got them. Everybody has them. I'm pretty sure if you listen to your speech and if you talked a lot, you would notice you have things too. So I just think standpoint's just one of those things that he says and... Honestly, I don't even notice it. It doesn't stand out to me. So from that standpoint, I don't think it's an issue. Uh, and you just kind of go from there. And the last question, and I saved this for last purposely, comes from Dog 22 That's Nate, who asks, mailbag question, what do you think of other podcasts that have blatantly called you out? Other podcasts have called you unprofessional for asking Patricia such questions as if his coaching was the reason for fourth quarter collapses, you think your reporting is fair. Okay, so I've heard about this for a couple of weeks now. I've had a couple of people reach out to me that there is at least one other podcast who has been taking shots at me uh, about the questions I ask Matt Patricia. Well, I will say this. Yes, I think my reporting is fair. Yes, I think my questions are fair. Because after week one, when the Lions lost to Chicago, what is the one thing anybody wanted to know? Why did they collapse? Why do they keep collapsing under Matt Patricia? What is the problem? And if you don't think that Matt Patricia, who had at that point lost and still has, has lost 11 fourth quarter leads, losing 10 of those games, and that's a third of his games in his tenure at that point, of course you're going to ask, hey, what are you doing differently in the fourth quarter? Is there something in your coaching that's that's contributing to that? Whether it's being more conservative, whether it's making some poor decisions, whether it's a whole multitude of things. So to think that that question is not fair is, I, I don't get it. Like that's legitimately the biggest question that was out there after week one. And if you have other issues with other questions I've asked Matt Patricia, find me one that you felt was blatantly unfair or something that you as a fan didn't want to know. Because at the end of the day, and I've said this before, 
my job is to be, or part of my job is to be a conduit of information from the fans and what they want to know about their team. And when their team is losing and when their team is struggling, which has been happening over and over in the Matt Patricia era, those questions are going to be hard. They're going to be difficult. They're going to be harsh in some aspects if you're asking based in fact. And I'm not somebody that likes to couch my questions with flowery stats. That's just never been me. So sometimes I will admit my questions come off as direct. But I would rather ask a direct question that is why or how or what than give you five stats and and then ask questions. And I've done that before too. Every situation calls for a different type of question. Every person has a different style in asking questions. I don't think one is necessarily better than the other, except if you're asking talk about, because talk about's not a question. You're just commanding that, that person to say these things. And I think it's better to ask open questions rather than closed questions. Closed questions, which basically limit can limit to a one or two word answer versus more of an explanation. That's the difference between good question and bad question. Uh, one other thing that, that's always stuck with me, and I've said this before, and I've said this to journalism classes, and I think I've said it on here, is that part of my job as a reporter is to ask questions I feel are, are valid. And, it, you know, and the person that I'm asking the question to has every right to answer the question or not answer the question. And almost every player and every coach I've ever covered always said that. Listen, you know, it's part of my deal as a reporter that, you know, I can ask within reason, uh, almost anything, you know, that, that is kind of germane, uh, and sometimes off the wall. And I've done that before too, and sometimes led to really interesting answers. And it is your right to answer that question or not answer that question. And that's part of the game. Uh, in press conferences are televised more, interviews are televised more, especially in the Zoom era. And that's, um, part of it that I think has brought more attention sometimes to questions that are asked, but I don't think it's any different. Listen, Jim Caldwell and I went back and forth a lot, a lot more, more than Matt Patricia and I have ever gone back and forth. So I don't necessarily think that my questions are unfair and I don't think that asking him about his coaching after fourth quarter collapses is unprofessional, especially when they've collapsed over and over and over again. I, I don't really know what that, that to me was the most important question or one of the most important questions after that loss against Chicago. Um, I'm really not sure what else to say about that. I mean, if there are other podcasts calling me out, reach out to me. I glad to gladly have a conversation with you about it. And, you know, depending on the podcast, and I, I have an idea of what podcast it is, but this question didn't bring it up. So who knows? Maybe there's more than one. I know of one of them out there. If those people want to have me on, reach out and, and we can talk about it and uh, we can see if we can make that work. I'm, I'm open to that. And yeah, but everybody is open to is has a right to their opinion. I obviously have my opinion about certain things. Other people are allowed to have their opinions on certain things. And that's part of what makes freedom of the press great and part of what makes this country great is the allowance of being able to have a differing and difference of opinion, especially about something like football. And that to me is something um, that that's great. Uh, and yeah, I, I, there's really nothing else I have to say about that, but I did want to address it because this is not the first time I've gotten this question. With that, we come to the end of another podcast episode. I want to thank you all for sticking with me. 
can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Rothstein. You can follow me on Facebook at Michael Rothstein Journalist. Go check out all of my sponsors. Really appreciate all of them. DoorDash, Pepsi, Regents Field, and Bet Online. And with that, we will chat with you tomorrow.